Welcome to the Passion Harvest podcast audio series. Thank you so much for listening today. I am Louisa, your host, International Passion Ambassador. Please head over to our Passion Harvest channel on YouTube. We love taking you on a journey to discover your passions. Thanks for listening. Hello, passionate listeners and watchers. Welcome to Passion Harvest. Thank you so much for joining us wherever you are in the world. I'm Louisa, your host, International Passion Ambassador. I'm so excited again about my guest today. His name is Dr. James G. Matlock or Jim. Jim is an American anthropologist. I go by Jim, yeah. Yeah, Jim is an American anthropologist. Anthropologist, yep and leading reincarnation researcher. Jim has adopted a comprehensive multicultural and interdisciplinary approach to to reincarnation studies and has advanced a theory on how (laughs) it happens, the processual soul theory. He received his PhD in anthropology from the Southern Illinois University in Carbondale, Illinois. His research interests center on phenomena bearing on post-mortem survival and reincarnation. Jim has published numerous journal papers and book chapters on these subjects in anthropology and parapsychology and is a regular contributor to the online PSI encyclopedia. Jim is the co-author of I Saw a Light and Came Here, Children's Experiences of Reincarnation and the author of Signs of Reincarnation, Exploring Beliefs, Cases and Theory. This is his story and this is his passion. Jim, welcome to Passion Harvest. Well, thank you, Louisa. I'm very happy to be here. I'm very excited for you to be on the show. I'd love to just dive in and get started. What, what, why are you fascinated or so interested in reincarnation? Well, I, you know, that, that is a good question. Um, for me, it was, um, uh, well, my, uh, I grew up wanting to be a writer, a creative writer. That was my passion, really, from early in life. Uh, and I remember even before I could write myself, I was dictating stories to my mother. That's how far back uh, that passion went. Um, and I carried uh, it with me uh, through the univer- through university, through college. But I couldn't make a living as a writer. I tried. Um, but I just... Um, I mean, I wasn't selling enough. I wasn't making enough of a living. So I thought, well, I'll try nonfiction. I had read a lot of fiction at that point because that's what I wanted to write. And I had noticed that the theme of rebirth or sometimes simply of reincarnation, not just a, you know, a psychological, spiritual rebirth, but a, an actual reincarnation had get coming up. You know, uh, and it's something I really didn't know anything about, but I kept noticing it in sh- in short stories and novels and so forth, and it intrigued me. But anyway, I went to my library, local library, and uh, was looking around uh, for a topic, um, and this was in the 1970s, and uh, I had become interested in sort of new age topics, so I was looking in that section. Um, and I, I came across these reincarnation books, and this is how it began, really, because I didn't know anything about it, you know, and it, it intrigued me, 
I had noticed the theme coming up, but I didn't know anything about the research. So I started reading the books and the more I got into them, particularly in Dean Stevenson's work, uh, the more fascinated I became and the more convinced I became that there was something here. I didn't know what it was at that point, but it seemed to me that there was something worth studying um, and something important worth studying. Uh, so through Stevenson, um, I was led into parapsychology uh, and by this point, we're in the 1980s, and um, I, uh, I, I've been with parapsychology ever since. I mean, once I found it, I, I found that there was a serious uh, research community in this field, that there were people actually doing real work on it. Uh, that was it for me. And, uh, you know, so that, that's how I got into this and, and what the, the overall meaning that it has for me. Well, thank you. And and th this is a hard question, but how would you define reincarnation? What is reincarnation? Past lives. It's actually, you know, it is. It, it, yeah, it's actually a very good question because, um, you know, um, for many people, when they think of reincarnation, they think of it as a religious belief mm -hmm. or as a spiritual thing. Uh, and they don't realize that it can also be studied scientifically. And that's where, that's where I'm coming from as a parapsychologist and as an anthropologist. As an anthropologist, I look more at beliefs and how it functions in society. As a parapsychologist, I look at, uh, is there evidence for it? Um, so, um, but how do we define reincarnation? What is it then? Um, and we can define it one way if we look at the beliefs, because that takes into the religion, right? Mm -hmm. And different religions have different ideas of what it means. Or if we look at it in a more scientific way, uh, and that's primarily what I'll be talking about today, I think will be, um, th that has to do with people's experiences, right? People's uh, experiences, particularly children's experiences and memories of previous lives, right? And, um, and the cases that that grow up around that because it's not just the memories. It turns out there's also behaviors that can be physical aspects to these cases as well. Um, so it's not just it's not just a past life memory, although that's an important uh, one of the most important signs. Uh, but the key thing here is the difference between a belief in reincarnation versus as uh, an experience of reincarnation or a parent's experiences of reincarnation, which then allow for a, uh, a scientific study of reincarnation as opposed to a study simply of beliefs. So, you know, uh, so uh, it, it can be either one really, and it just depends on how you want to approach it. It's perfectly valid to look at beliefs and look at it as a spiritual system. It's also perfectly valid to look at it as a po the possibility that we as human beings are reincarnated and it's part of our psychology and biology, just a different way of looking at it. And you talk about the signs of reincarnation. What are the signs? Uh, well, one of them I mentioned, and that's the, the past life memories. I mean, many mm -hmm. people now are familiar with those that become yes. a, a sort of part of our culture now. We, we're aware of that. So that's, that's one class of sign, there's memories. And then I mentioned behaviors. When um, in many of these, particularly with children, their memories are detailed enough 
that uh, that the people that they remember having been, and they do remember, they do feel like there were these people before, right? They identify with them. Mm-hmm. They talk about them in first person. Um, they will remember very often, not always, but very often they'll remember enough details, including names of where they lived or themselves or their families for the people that they were to be traced. Okay. And when those people are traced, then it turns out that uh, they're, that you can relate, not just the memories, the memories turn out to be correct very often, most of the time. Um, uh, and uh, you can then, once you have found the previous person, mm-hmm. um, you can then see that personality traits have carried over, that behaviors are repeated, the skills are carried over. So a lot of things that were sort of unexplained in the child's behavior and in personality now makes sense when you understand the person who was before. And it's the same with physical things. There can be, you know, many people now think of facial resemblance. It's not always there and you have to be careful with that. It certainly, facial resemblance certainly should not be used in a diagnostic way that some people in the new age scene use it. And yet sometimes there are facial resemblances. Um, uh, you know, and they, they can be quite specific sometimes. For instance, uh, Asians who recall uh, having been Europeans may have eyes of the European shape. Uh, they may have uh, skin tones that are lighter. Some of them are actually albinos. Mm-hmm. Um, um, or there can be birthmarks. That's another major class of physical sign that, that, that many people know about now. Um, but it can also be a, a whole range of other things, like physical stature, like uh, even diseases can carry over. So, uh, you know, um, you know, or, you know, somebody who is, there are cases of, of people, say, who were shot through the heart, uh, and then you have congenital heart disease, who are born with heart disease, that sort of thing. So it's a variety, those are the three major classes of signs, the memories, the behaviors, and the physical things. But there, there, there's some other things as well I can mention. Gosh, this is so fascinating. I've got my brains just thinking of so many questions to ask you, but the, 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 the first one that comes to mind is, have you ever researched, from if we're talking about children, which is a fascinating past life memory, researched someone they uh, remembered being in another life and they were still alive? So there were two, uh, two living people with the same no. soul. no. It's not just that. It's just I, right. Yeah. No, uh, there's not just they. It's not just cases that I've studied. Nobody has found a case like that. Um, they, 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 the people that the children remember having been are deceased. Is it your belief that we can live as, in multiple incarnations at the same time? No, I don't see the evidence of that. That's an idea that sort of floats around in New Age circles nowadays. Mm-hmm. It's sort of popular. Many people say that. But no, there's no evidence for it. You know, and, I, you know, I start with the cases. I'm a scientist in that way. Uh, I mean, yeah. I, you know, I start with the data. And you know, the data tell me what, what, what the truth is. And I don't see it in the data. You know, it was just an interesting question. Um, just to continue with the children, I believe your daughter, Christina, when she was three, started talking about a past life. 
That's right. She did. Yeah, she did. She's, and it's, um, you know, that's the a very common age to begin. Some children start even earlier than that too, or sometimes is you know the first thing. Uh, that they say, and some of these kids can be very precocious in speaking too, and precocious in other ways. Sometimes the first thing they say at as early as 18 months turns out, you know, to be related to their past life memory. You don't realize it at the time, but mm-hmm. it can be a name, it can be a, you know, some sort of a thing or an idea that later turns out to be related to this. So um, for, for many young children, it's almost as if they're born with them, born with these memories. Uh, they can't express them immediately. I mean, it takes them a few years to be able to express them, mm-hmm. but they seem to have the ideas. They seem to have the, image, the images in their minds. Um, and, uh, you know, I mean, we, we can't, not all children do talk about them and we can't really know, I mean, uh, do all children have these memories? And then most of them have just lost them by the time they can express them. And so they don't, or, you know, or, uh, or, or what? Or, or uh, do, the, do, do the memories come to them later? Uh, because one of the things that, uh, that we see very clearly in these memories of children at all ages and also with adults, adults can also have these memories, um, is that particularly the initial ones are triggered by something, triggered by something they see or they hear. And so it, it isn't necessarily that they're born with the memories and they just, they may or may not go away. Uh, they may be close enough to the surface of their conscious minds um, that when they see something something that reminds them of it, it can pull that up to their consciousness. And with children, that seems to be easier. It seems to be easier for that to happen than with adults. And so you more often find um, young children uh, uh, talking about these memories in enough detail uh, that you can actually trace uh, the person that they're talking about. So interesting. And I guess children are more open to the possibility or the creativity to explore their thoughts, whereas an adult might think, you know, that's just a story or it's just a thought that's in my mind. Well, that's right. I mean, and I don't think that these children necessarily think uh, of it as creativity either. I mean, you know, it's real to them and they haven't been taught yet that you, you know, you haven't lived before, you know, they just, uh, my daughter, uh, the first thing she said uh, at three, um, we were driving and uh, we had stopped at at a traffic light. There was a motorcycle ahead of us at the light and she said to me, uh, Daddy, do you like to ride on motos? Moto is motocicleta, her mother's Peruvian. We were raising her to be bilingual, so she sometimes doing these Spanish words. Um, Daddy, do you like to ride on motos? And I said, uh, no, honey, I don't. This does scare me. I don't like, I really do not like motorcycles. Um, and she said very earnestly, you have to hold on real tight and I said, well, honey, when have you, and it was, you know, it was so, it was so earnest that, it, it, you know, it seemed to come from experience. And I said, well, honey, when have you been on a motorcycle? Three, she's saying this. Was it in Lima? 
um, because she had sometimes gone there with her mother without me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she said, no, it was a long time ago before I came to you and mommy. Um, so she figured it out on her own that she had been remembering a previous life. She had, this is the first thing she said to us about it, but she actually had these memories in her mind. She had figured it out on her own uh, that it was before she came to us. Um, but to her, it was entirely natural. I mean, it wasn't something that, you know, she realized that, you know, uh, that, that, People didn't talk. Well, I don't know. I mean, at three, she may have realized people don't normally talk about this. Mm-hmm. She wouldn't necessarily have known people don't have these memories, right? And so um, uh, many of these kids do keep them to themselves, but not all of them do. Some of them just talk all the time about their memories, okay, with everyone who they, that they meet. Uh, Christina talked with me, talked with her mother. She never talked, them, uh, talked with my parents about them, even. Um, she did when she was much older tell her best friend about it but she kept them private I know and some children are like that but, uh, hmm. I, I've forgotten what your question was but <laughs> I guess it's an interesting it's fine I mean I had, if, if you will if you wouldn't mind sharing some of your most interesting um, research or experiences of children's with past life memories or cases well, I think my most interesting one uh, may be uh, one that I have in, in my book, Science of Reincarnation. Um, uh, Rylan O'Banion, who is a, an American girl, um, uh, who was 10 when I interviewed her. Uh, but when she was much younger, beginning when she was around two, um, she uh, began to behave in very strange ways. Um, ways that almost seemed traumatized. Um, She would sleepwalk uh, during the night. Um, Mother put her back in bed. She'd be up again. If she put her back in bed in her room, she would be up up again in a few minutes sleepwalking again. Um, And and this, and, and as she got older, she started complaining about her shirts. Her ta- she wanted all the tags cut out of her shirts in the back. She had to hurt her, hurt her neck. Uh, she said her, her shirts hurt her, her skin. It felt like her skin was burning. Her mother was reading, had read her a story and tucking her in bed at night, had read her a story, turned off the light. And Ryland said to her mother, uh, you remember that picture in which I was bigger? And I said, yeah, she started arguing with her again. You know, how can you? And she said, um, "Mommy, I died." So she had remembered then something more, but that's all she really remembered. Uh, she thought that she had been in the yard, um, and she died. She was kind of confused still. She thought it was the yard of her house there, in an Oklahoma. Right. What it turned out, and, and gradually. She had more and more memories. And at six is, is when she really had the breakthrough. Um, she remembered that she had died in a plane crash. And uh, she had been talking before that. She'd been saying more and more things. She had been talking about Louisiana. She talked, she talked about Canada also, or you know, mentioned the word Canada. Um, and the date 1971. Um, 
But anyway, with those clues, a plane crash, 1971, Canada, Louisiana, that was enough for her mother to go and Google, you know, and see if she could somehow figure this out. Um, nothing in Canada, no plane crashes in Canada, no plane crashes in 1971. However, a plane crash in Louisiana, yes. There was a plane crash in New Orleans, Louisiana. In fact, in the New Orleans airport where this happened uh, is in Kenner, Louisiana. Kenner, Canada after a young child, maybe. So at any rate, um, pieces suddenly started falling into place. And this was a, a Pan Am flight um, that took off um, from the New Orleans International Airport, hit a low altitude wind shear, that brought it down less than a mile from the end of the wind, into the runway, crashing into a residential neighborhood. This was at the time, this is 1982, uh, at the time was the third worst aviation accident in US aviation history. So there are a lot of news stories about it, of course, and a lot on the internet, you know, for her to find. And it, everybody on the plane died, of course, and so did six people on the ground. One of the people on the ground was a girl um, who fit a lot of what uh, Ryland had been saying, right? She was born, it turns out, in 1971. There's the date, 1971. Right. Um, so, you know, the, the pieces began to fit together. Uh, but I interviewed her a couple of years after that episode and so had a lot of new developments too mm -hmm. and was able to correct some things that they got wrong in the dramatization right but that's that's a minor issue but um the um the, uh, the important point here is that she was the mother was um already in contact with the producers for that show before Ryland remembered the plane crash that allowed them to figure out who she was. So we have an email record of uh, almost on a daily basis of developments through that period and therefore a written record of Ryland's memories before the case was solved, before We've, they right. figured out who the girl was. So anyway, um, she was 10 by the time I interviewed her. But then I went to New Orleans and interviewed the people, uh, her friends, um, who were still alive. You, you, this, this, you asked me, had I you know, it, ever interviewed both sides? Mm -hmm. And yes, this is an example of it. Um, because it's 1982, and all and her friends were um, uh, you know, also living, you know, and they... You know, uh, they remembered her very well, you know. So I talked to them. Um, and uh, this is quite interesting uh, because they asked me um, uh, they, they, uh, about her, of course. Uh, uh, and one of the things they asked um, was whether she liked to make crafts. Uh, because they said one of the things that Ryland did, one of the things that, uh, excuse me, that um, Jennifer did was make crafts. She made little crosses and gave them to her friends at Christmas time. She had made a, an, an owl on a stick and given it to a couple of her friends. 
So I said, well, I don't know, but I'll ask her mother. Uh, because, you know, her mother would not have, I mean, there were many things about Ryland. Her mother never thought to tell me, right? So I went back and sure enough, Ryland also made crafts. And guess what kind of crafts? She made crosses and gave them to her friends at Christmas time. She um, had made an owl on a stick that was very similar. I mean, you know, it, it, so this this is the sort of thing that you find out when you when you when you get the identity, when you solve the case, when you know who the person was, you can match up the personality, you can match up a lot of habits and skills, and you can see things that are carried over. Um, the other thing I did, and this is also very important, is I went and got her autopsy report, um, and. I, uh, the autopsy report told me how she had died and you know what her injuries were, um, and that that was important because one of the thing okay the, um, one of the things that Ryland remembered at ten, which she hadn't really remembered when she was younger, she remembered it when she was ten, and I actually you know I recorded my interviews, of course I've got this um, on tape for saying this, um, she remembered sitting on a swing in a carport, her house's carport, talking on a telephone, uh, and this is 81, so we don't have cell phones at that point. We don't have wireless phones, really. You know, so this would have been, uh, you know, and this would have been a, on a long cord running out of the kitchen door. Um, so, but anyway, she's sitting here talking on the phone. Um, and seeing the plane come towards her, remember the plane crashed into this residential neighborhood. So the last thing she saw was this plane coming towards her. Well, now the, the accident scene was ghastly. It took out 15 houses on three streets. Mm. Ryland's house was half destroyed. And I have a picture of it in my book for, you know, a neighbor across the street took a picture of it the next morning. And, you know, it's just, it, the devastation is just amazing. Um, anyway, that cardboard was totally destroyed. Um, and it took three days, uh, you know, because there's such a, an area here to go through and to clean up. It took three days before her body was found. Okay. So none of the news stories reported where she was because the news stories are, you know, before that. Um, and none of her friends knew either. They didn't know. And so there was a lot of speculation about what had happened to her. Well, the, oh, the other thing she said was that she felt like she had been electrocuted. She was talking on the phone. She felt like she'd been electrocuted in the carport and her memories broke off actually with the plane coming towards her before they hit the house. But the plane did hit the house and uh, it destroyed the house and it set the house on fire. Okay, so when I got the autopsy report, it turns out that that um, Jennifer's body was recovered from the carport. Okay, it was recovered from the floor of the carport. It was 100% burned, as you would expect, but no soot in the trachea no discoloration of the blood, which indicates that she did not inhale any smoke. She died before the fire, mm -hmm. right? 
Um, so, <laughs> okay. Another, another interesting thing here, it turns out that there were um, electrical and, tel and um, telephone lines running on the pole right in front of her house. They were on the same pole in that neighborhood. And in 1981, I learned the electrical lines were not insulated. The plane sliced right through them, right through, you know, the, the, the power line and the, the telephone line. So we have to speculate. I mean, you know, and it took out a major transformer and people all of that neighborhood heard this big bang. But if the electrical lines, uninsulated electrical lines had come in contact with a telephone line, it could have sent a surge up the telephone line. There are cases rare cases, but there are cases of people being electrocuted over telephone lines. So it's possible that Ryland was electrocuted over the telephone line, the way she said. No documentation of that. Nobody to see it. You know, just her memory. But her memory fits the facts from the autopsy report. And, you know, and what we can reconstruct and something that nobody knew it was not in any press, and so this is the type of thing when you we, that when you you can get this sort of documentation backing up the memories, but you know they're not written down anywhere. There's nobody who knew them whose minds you could have gotten them telepathically. Maybe, you know, it really it pushes you to the point where what explanation really is there other than memory carrying forward. Um, and, and so the best cases are like that. Uh, and this is, has to be one of the best cases because we have the documentation in the email of her memories before they determined who it was. We have the autopsy report that matches up her memories. And it's very, very hard to explain these types of phenomena, um, you know, as being imagination. I mean, you know, how can they be, uh, you know? Uh, or, uh, you know, parents and, you know, remember the girl, Ryland was born in Oklahoma and this girl died in Louisiana, you know, that's quite a distance in the United States. So um, the families were known to each other. This was, you know, 26 years before. And, you know, it's just, so even though it was an important event at the time, uh, it's not something that her parents in Oklahoma were aware of, right? So uh, you just you, you you start trying to figure out is there some way, other way other than reincarnation to explain things like this? And there's just so many cases uh, that uh, you get to the point. I get to the point. Researchers get to the point um, that we just we 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 to be intellectually honest with this stuff. We have to say. Well, you know, there is evidence for reincarnation. There really is. Yes, I'm in agreement. You certainly are very passionate about this. That's for sure. I love your passion. Did Ryland, uh, <laughs> did Ryland go back to meet her friends and family from her previous life? She is not yet. Um, there were plans to take her back on her 11th birthday, right? You know, um, uh, or on the 11th anniversary. She would have been, no, not on 11th birthday, but on the 11th anniversary of the crash um, uh, when she was, when she was herself 11, I mean, she would have been 11, but you know, but it was the 11th anniversary of the crash, um, but it didn't work out and they haven't, uh, they haven't gone yet. Um, they, they still plan to, they want to, and the family, 
you know, um, I should say the friends of, of Jennifer. Uh, we're, we're looking forward to meeting her, uh, but it hasn't happened yet. And uh, now the family, okay, Jennifer's family, let me just say this. Sure. Um, Jennifer's mother has, has Jennifer's mother has, has passed away. She's no longer with us now. Um, her sister, who was in the house, was very, very badly burned. She'd survived. She was very badly burned. Um, and um, her father has since moved away from the neighborhood. Both of them know this story. Uh, both of them, um, contexts have been, you know, they know about this, right? Um, and attempts have been made to reach out to them. I haven't because other people already had and there was no response. So I didn't, you know, you know, it's, it's their choice. If they don't mm -hmm. want to be dragged into this, I'm not going to force them to. And, and so the, Rylan, um, Jennifer's sister and her father who are still surviving have not been contacted. Um, uh, uh, by me and uh, only indirectly by the people, but they haven't responded and gotten back uh, to uh, uh, to the family on this. So I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm honoring that. And uh, but but Jennifer's friends are quite eager to see her, and um, when she does go back, she'll definitely meet them. Experiencing these past lives, or particularly just since we're talking about the case of Ryland, how how has that helped her, or how has that helped her? explore more of this current life that she's living and potentially some of her anxieties you know, or fears as well. Right. Um, well, I haven't asked her, you know, you know, in general, um, that, uh, but, but I can, I can, I can tell you that once, um, uh, once sense was made of, of this whole thing, that her her odd behaviors subsided, right? Mm -hmm. Her sleepwalking pretty much ceased, dropped off for a long time. She no longer, you know, complains about her clothes and so forth. So she no longer has these stress behaviors. And when I met her, I mean, she was perfectly at ease with me and no sign at that point of any of any stress. Um, so that was resolved and that would have been, um, you know, that would have been a consequence of, 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 of solving this, as we say. And that's something we see in many of these cases, um, that once the kids go back or even once it, it, it you know, once the, the case is, I keep using the word solved, that's the term we use, um, in the research community, it, it brings a resolution. Uh, to the kids and they can let it go. Uh, did she have any memory once she died, what, what, what she experienced once her physical body had passed? Right. That's another very interesting question. Um, uh, you know, about 20%, as it turns out, about 20% of these kids who have these memories do remember something about um, the period between death and rebirth. And Ryland was one of them. And what she remembered was quite interesting because what she remembered was meeting her mother's mother who had decided, who uh, died, I believe it was 12 years. So before Ryland's birth, right? Mm -hmm. So between Jennifer's death and Ryland's birth, she encounters her mother's mother 
right? So this is what provides the link then to her family, right? You know, um, and you know, so when she told her mother about this, she used the correct name for her mother, right? She described them, described her accurately. Um, she said that uh, the, the woman had liked to play with, with kids, which had been true of her mother's mother in life. Mm-hmm. She had joined playing with kids. So, but, you know, <laughs> I, you know, sometimes these things boggle the mind, really. Um, yes, that provides the link um, to Ryland's family. It helps explain why Ryland was born where she was. But how did Ryland, but how did Ryland's grandmother find her? Yes. You know, I, I, in this, we don't know. There's no way of answering that. But there is one interesting thing. Both families are Catholic. Now, Catholics are in a minority in the United States. It's not, you know, uh, you know, and so it's, it's of some significance that both families, you know, were Catholic. Um, and, uh, you know, and so maybe there is a, a previous life connection somehow because uh, between them, you know, that we just, we don't know about, you know, I mean, uh, because um, in many, many of these cases, there are family connections. Are um, sometimes there are uh, claimed or purported family connections that go back uh, a reincarnational generation or so. Um, by which I mean, you know, the people in the present life didn't know each other, in the, the previous life didn't know each other, but they claim to have known each other in prior lives, right? So we don't, so maybe, I mean, you know, it could be something like that. That could be the explanation because um, these emotional ties, psychic ties, I think is what it comes down to, um, are very important in explaining how the reincarnation comes about, where people are reborn. Your theory, and I'm probably not pronouncing it, processual soul theory or your soul theory, do you mind explaining that a little, a little bit more? And I probably pronounced that incorrectly. No, no, no. You pronounced it exactly oh, correctly. Processual perfect. Soul okay. Uh, <laughs> um, okay. Uh, There's a little bit of philosophy here. Um But before I get to, well, I guess it's all philosophy in, in a way. Uh, but but uh, the first thing I need to say mm-hmm. is, um, is to talk about the soul and what the soul is, right? Uh, because, you know, that's, that's, that's the religious, basically a religious idea. This, the soul is a religious concept, right? Um, but if you, if you ask people what it is that reincarnates, they'll say the soul. But what is the soul? I mean, I puzzled about this for a long time. If we can say what reincarnates is the soul, what is the soul? What is it? I love this question. Until I realized, well, yeah, I one of the, what I realized finally um, is that the soul can be understood simply as the mind or as consciousness, mm-hmm. right? Now, 
it has, you know, it, it has other dimensions to it. It has a, other qualities to it of the spirit. You know, there, the whole, the lot packed into the word soul. Um, you know, but if you're thinking in terms of what if something that survives death and then reincarnates, what would be more natural for that simply to be a stream of consciousness, right? And um, one thing that that helped me that helped that click in my mind was uh, reading a paper by actually by a quantum physicist um, um, who uh, was explaining why um, survival, personal survival, survival of consciousness is completely compatible with, with quantum theory because um, uh, although it's controversial, uh, there is a, a major a strand in quantum theory that says that consciousness lies outside the physical order, outside the physical order, right? And that consciousness is required to make the physical order work properly, right? So if consciousness is apart from the physical order, and the physical order, of course, would include our bodies, right? Mm -hmm. Then then if consciousness is separate from material reality, um, then that means that there's nothing to keep uh, consciousness from surviving death, right? The body dies. Yes, our bodies die. But our consciousness can continue. And if our consciousness continues then, all that would be required of reincarnation then is for the consciousness then to become associated with another body, to possess, let's say, another body. Uh, and so that's how I see it. That's how I understand it. Um, that what survives death is simply a stream of consciousness that's continuous with our embodied life. We just continue on. We just continue on into death. We have these experiences like Ryan described during death. Uh, and then we come into association with a new body um, and that's what we call reincarnation. Mm. Now, when that happens, um, you know, we, we lose something. We, you know, we, we become new people, right? Um, we have the same consciousness and that's why children who talk about previous lives will use first person. I mean, when Rylan talks about Jennifer, she says, I, right? When my daughter, Christina, talked about her memories, she talked, she said, I, I did this, I experienced it. Um, so they, they have this sense of continuity um, that you would expect, you know, if, if it's just a stream of consciousness continuing. Um, but for me, it's not just a stream of conscious awareness. Consciousness includes the subconscious, and you know we're all aware. You know, not only do we, we have conscious awareness of things, we have a subconscious too, right? And um, so, I believe that in our that our subconscious that is where our memories are stored, right? Our memories are stored, our personalities, our traits are stored. A lot of all the stuff that comes through after we reincarnate comes up, bubbles up from our subconscious. So when we reincarnate, there's a reset in our conscious mind and we lose, you know, 
the 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 connection with our subconscious, but it's still there, you know. And so, under the right circumstances, things from the subconscious can still come up into conscious awareness, and I think that's what happens in these cases. Um, so, um, and now, processual soul theory. So, um, so that's why I call it soul, right? Because consciousness sort of soul for me, right? And so. Um, processual, and I mentioned that I had to get into some philosophy here. Um, so the, the, the philosophers call this process metaphysics, where you're, you're talking about not just a, uh, a soul being a discrete, you know, sort of quantity uh, in, in, in Cartesian terms, in terms of Rene Descartes, right? Um, you're talking about uh, where, where that discrete thing just reincarnates, comes back. You're talking about a process, a psychological process of psychological continuity from one life to another. And that's called process, process metaphysics, process theory. And that's where the processual part comes from. So pr the processual soul theory. And why, maybe this is an, why don't we, why don't we, remember our lives or our why can't we tap into our subconscious mind in when we're reborn yeah um i i think actually there's probably good reason why we don't i mean think about rylan for instance she's a very good example of why most people don't uh, you know if we all did you know then we would have to put up with these all these traumatic experiences and it was not it wasn't not easy on her in her first years nor was it easy on her family particularly until they understood what was going on with her because at the beginning i mean she was a very you know um a very well behaved balanced child you know um and then all of a sudden she started behaving in these really odd ways, traumatized ways, and there was nothing in her life that could have caused this. Um, a, a lot of things that the children remember are very traumatic things. They often remember how they died, for instance. And death is, is gonna be a traumatic thing yeah. for many people. Now you can die from illness and it's not that traumatic, you can die at old age. But most of these kids remember dying when they're much younger, right? And they remember having been murdered, you know? Uh, or they remember the accident that killed them. Um, and um, it's not easy. Those, those things are not easy to deal with. And for a young child having to deal with this um, and at the same time adjust to a new life. I mean, and I see, you know, they, they'll often remember lives uh, in, um, in different circumstances, right? With different parents, they miss the other parents. They can't understand why they're with these new parents. Uh, you know, if they died as kids, what happened to my old parents? I want to see my old parents. They're my parents, you're not my parents, you know. Yeah. Um, so um, even, even if they're not, even if they're not a traumatic thing, there can still be, you know, these emotional things. And if it's in the same family, <laughs> you have to deal with being in a new relationship. All of a sudden, instead of a grandparent, you're a grandchild. Right. And so your relationships to everybody you remember has changed. 
and that takes adjustments, particularly for the young kid, but all around. Um, and so I think there are very good reasons why we don't remember these lives. I think our subconscious uh, sees to it that we don't. I mean, I think it's a, just it's, it's the fence mechanism. I mean, that's you know it's something that psychology knows very well. You're right, psychiatry knows very well about defense mechanisms. And I think yes. basically that's what is involved here. And. Um... So we're having all these incarnations or reincarnations or lives. In your opinion, what is the purpose of it at all? Is it the evolution of consciousness? Are we evolving as a species? Actually, I'm just answering questions, but I'll ask the question, what's, what's your opinion about why, why are we here? <laughs> yeah. Right, but these are good questions because these are questions many people have, right? Um, so... Um, what is the purpose of reincarnation? Um, the standard New Age sort of answer is, uh, uh, you know, we grow through our lives. We're, we're, we're going through lives to learn lessons and we're growing spiritually. Um, maybe over the long term we are. Um, over the short term, which is really all that we can see in the cases because we really, we, we, well, we have a good number, you know, over 2,700 cases that have been solved. Um, you know, that's of only one life. There are very few cases, only two cases really, of two solved lives. Uh, and there's one now um, that's beginning to be published where uh, there may be as many as four. Mm -hmm. uh, but we don't have full documentation of that one yet. Um, so we can't, as a consequence, we can't really see life series, right? And we can't really, so we can't really see a long-term process of change or growth. Um, what we do see is change, right? But we all change in the course of our individual lives. If we live long enough, you know, we all change. We all go through changes, you know. Um, and the changes from one life to another, for the most part, are the same sorts of changes. Now, we're new people, we're different people in each life as a, as a consequence of having different bodies, of having grown up in different times, in different families, different cultures very often. Um, and those all influences as well. But the past personalities also influences, even if we don't have memories, they can influence us. Our behaviors, our emotions, those things can be influenced also. Um, so, you know, oftentimes things do carry over, you know, uh, from one life to to another, even if we're not consciously aware of that. And so the change can be gradual and slow, just like it can be, you know, in, in any individual life. Or it can come very rapidly, just like it can if something really dramatic happens to somebody, they can all of a sudden change. The same thing with reincarnation. So I can't rule out the possibility that the, the, that um, that over the course of many, many lives, there is some sort of progress. Is it the sort of spiritual progress that's talked about? I really have my doubts because I, uh, I you know, I think if, we, if you think about, if you think, really think about reincarnation, once you really begin to accept it uh, and start thinking about, okay, so when did it begin? <laughs> I mean, there has to have been a beginning to this, right? 
it seems to me the most logical beginning point was when life started. When life and death started, that's when reincarnation started. Okay, so bodies wore out, the consciousness just survived. And what that implies is that consciousness has been going on for a very long time. And it's not just human beings that reincarnate. I mean, we human beings have consciousness potentially, which has, has gone through eons of, of you know, of lives as, as other species, as other, you know, you know, other creatures on the way to becoming human, right? Um, if that's the case, that, that, that reincarnation began when life began, that implies that uh, we've incarnated through many different life forms, right? Through many different species, you know, before we became human, before we became primates, before we became mammals. Um, and, I, you know, so, but I think that, that, I think consciousness has evolved, right? And consciousness has evolved to work in different species, right? So another question here that we, I get a lot is, um, can humans reincarnate as non-human animals? Don't see that. We don't see evidence of that. You know, it's, it's part of religious beliefs in Hinduism and Buddhism. Right. But we don't really see evidence of it. What we do see is evidence that animals, cats and dogs and some other animals, there's some really suggestive stories that they, they, they also can reincarnate, which is what I would, it would be consistent with what I'm suggesting here. So, um, so I, I suggest that consciousness has evolved as the physical form has evolved. And not only that, but consciousness has evolved in order to work in each, in, in physical form, uh, with its physical form. So each species has its own type of consciousness, right? Um, so, but anyway, the, this, the way this comes back to the spiritual evolution question is that if we compare human beings to other animals, by what right can we say that we humans are so spiritually evolved? I mean, think about it. Think about what we do to each other. You know, um, yeah, there are other species. And interestingly enough, uh, species that are particularly close to us, like chimps, who also protect, practice infanticide and so forth, but not on the scale that we do as human beings. You know, not homicides on the scale they do, not rapes on the scale they do, and so forth. I mean, it was just, it's just, if you start thinking about how we treat people, um, it becomes very difficult, for me at least, to understand how we can claim that we're so spiritually evolved. I mean, it seems to me elephants and dolphins, to give two examples, are probably more spiritually evolved than we are, if we want to ask that question. So, um, um, so I, so I'm, I'm kind of skeptical of this it, reincarnation is all about spiritual involvement sort of argument assumption. I think it is about change. I think it is about adaptation. I think it is about evolution. Um, and, uh, um, which is a gradual sort of thing. And, you know, and so, uh, when we're fast, you know, destroying our planet, um, for human beings like us, so we'll either evolve into into another uh, into another species that can better tolerate the environment that we're creating, 
or we're going to have to go somewhere else and then going somewhere else will lead to other you know, will lead to other evolutionary changes. So we will evolve. I mean, we're, we're homo sapiens, sapiens aren't, we're, is the present end, but it's not the end of evolution. So it's just, the process is just going to continue. Um, but I think reincarnation has been an important part of that process. Um, and uh, and will we'll continue to be. Very interesting theory. I just have to ask you, you talked about reincarnation with cats or dogs or animals. How do you have evidence for that? Yeah, and that's very interesting too. Of course, they can't talk, you know, but they can behave. Mm -hmm. You know, they can show that they recognize people. Uh, they can emote in the same ways. They can, you know, uh, you know, they can react to the same people in, in certain ways, you know. Um, there, there are a number of stories now, a number of books about this, you know, if any of your viewers are interested, I mean, just yeah. Google, you know, pet reincarnation, cat reincarnation, dog, you'll come up with a lot of different books. So um, I, there are a lot of these stories now, and um, th there's enough of them that, I, you know, I, um, I'm not willing to say there's nothing to it. You know, particularly because it makes sense in terms of my theory, I guess. Um, but um, but one of the really interesting things about it is that many of the signs are the same signs as we see with humans. Because I mentioned the behaviors, mm -hmm. I, I, you know, I, I, emotions are a part of it too. I mean, the children when they go back and they meet people from the previous family. Uh, if they were in a bad marriage, they'll be standoffish to the to the the, the widow or widower, right? Uh, if they had a particularly good relationship with somebody, the kids will respond to that person in the same way. I mean, the they, they, they emotions carry over too, right? So, and you see the same thing with the animals. I mean, if they're particularly close with one human, they will be, you know, the animal that is that the families think has returned to them will be particularly attached to that person. Um, and there can also be physical things, um, uh, you know, and, and an animal that has a particular mark on it will have, an, you know, it's just, it, it's the same signs. It's the same signs as you see with human reincarnation, which, you know, makes me, um, um, you know, think that, uh, that these are these are signs. That's one reason why I call my book "Signs of Reincarnation" because uh, these are sort of basic signs that seem somehow to be associated with reincarnation because we see them over and over and over again, and we've seen them and they've been recorded throughout history. I mean, there are cases like the kinds that we study today with the same sort of signs: the birthmarks, behaviors, the path-like memories going way back in history. Pythagoras, for instance, um, felt like he remembered previous lives and he, he, he thought that he recognized um, a, he, a sword in a temple and he thought he was uh, um, Euphorbus, I believe that's the connected pronunciation of, um, who was, uh, uh, who Homer wrote about in the Iliad. It was, uh, um, so he's a stark personage who, who died centuries actually before, um, before Pythagoras was born. But that's the earliest documentation and that's what, 500, 600 BC, right? Uh, and as we move into uh, 
the first millennium, we have a number of cases from China and then uh, going all the way up, you know, uh, um, if, you know, in different countries all the way up 19th, 20th century. We didn't start getting a, a serious systematic study until the 1960s, but we have these cases going way back from all over the world. Well, I have to ask you the question, Jim, do you remember any of your past lives? I, it, yeah, no, I don't, I, I, I don't, yeah. And what's your thoughts on um, past life regression or hypnosis? Um, right, um, two, two main thoughts. One, for the purposes of therapy, I think it can be quite helpful. For the purposes of research, not so much. Mm -hmm. I'll expand on that, explain. Um, and the reason is that the regressions are, um, are much more difficult uh, to solve, right? Um, people under regression will give many facts, but when you try to verify those facts, they won't check out. Or if some facts do check out, then the identity of the previous person does not. It seems to be masked. I call that the Bridie Murphy effect because Bridie Murphy is a well-known case and it's like that. Um, Virginia Teague, who remembered, she was regressed and remembered Bridie. She mentioned various things which were, you know, it's hard to understand, uh, you know, uh, how she could have known these, these things, names of shop owners in Cork, names of streets in Belfast. I mean, you know, on the other hand, great effort was made to try to locate a Bridie Murphy. Her husband's name was Brian Murphy, according to her. No evidence that either of them existed. And this is true of many regressions where there's some, some facts check out, but the identity of the previous person is not. And you see, coming back to what I was saying before, I think it's simply, I think it's an unconscious thing. I think the identity is masked. I think that's part of the mechanism that we have our subconscious has of keeping us from knowing this. And I think that we find this in the regressions because we're trying to induce the memories. We're trying to get past these subconscious blocks, right? And the subconscious doesn't like that. It's trying to protect us, right? It thinks it knows what's better for us, you know, we know what's better for us um, deep down. And, you know, and so there's this resistance to the effort to get past that. And so it throws up all these blocks. Um, um, so, but with, on the other hand, uh, so I don't think it's very useful for, okay. for research purposes and it's not used by researchers. On the other hand, for therapy purposes, there is a difference between factual validity you know, things that check out yes. and psychological validity because things that, you know, we can imagine things, you know, you know, and they can, uh, and they can express something which is real, right? You know, and so subconsciously we can distort things to allow us, purpose, purposely to allow, allow us to deal with a certain truth but not in such a direct or um, um, 
problematic way, right? Psychologically problematic way. And so that's why I think, you know, that, that uh, therapists have found their aggressions can be very useful. And, you know, so that's why I, I make that decision. Hmm. Thanks for explaining that so well. Jim, I've asked all the questions. Is there something you'd like to share with the Passion Harvest audience that I haven't asked you? Um, you know, those questions always throw me at the end of interviews. Oh, no, I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> I didn't mean to do that. Well, I've got another question, know. but then I'll ask you. you. A <laughs> okay. go ahead, go ahead. Um, I'll, I'll just ask a question then. I can, I can, I can, I can ask you questions all day. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't have to answer your question. I don't have anything that I want to say. So go ahead with your questions. What, what would you say to people that are afraid of dying? who are afraid of dying. Well, you know, um, I guess I have different thoughts. One, my daughter always said, she always said she never, she didn't die. Whenever I would talk about her death, and I, I only did it a couple of times because I, she would just say, I didn't die. Because she had the sense that it, she, she had continued and I'd say, honey, well, look, death is about the body. You don't have the same body now. That person died. You know, you you know, and so death isn't. It, it, yes, you're right. I mean, you didn't die. Your subconscious, you you know, your conscious continues. You're the same person as before. Uh, but but you, but but that person is no longer. And when we say death, we're talking about. It, but she never really bought it. <laughs> so so that's one way of 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 looking mm -hmm. at this, um, is to realize that even though um, your body will cease to exist at some point. You won't in a, in a real sense, uh, that your consciousness will continue. Um, but I've also heard, I've also seen many people say, right, and or people say um, that uh, understanding um, the evidence of, for survival of death in reincarnation, that it's not just an idea, you know, you know, but there's actual evidence for these things helps them, helps them realize that death is not the end, and so that 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 that, that makes them less fearful. Well, wonderful! What a wonderful way to end the show, Dr. James G. Matlock or Jim. Thank you so much for being on Passion Harvest. I've I've loved your insights and your scientific approach to reincarnation and past life memories. Thanks so much, Jim. Well, thank you, Louisa. I'm, I'm really glad you found me. It's it's been a pleasure. Okay, bye bye. That is the end of our passionate episode. Thank you so much for listening and please subscribe, leave a review, tell your friends and spread the passion. As always, every day, may you be more and more passionate.